Well, good morning. Am I on? Okay, I'm on. Here we are. Good. I'm going to scooch. It's a little cooler than last Sunday. It's nice. It's a gift from God. Well, welcome again. Again, my name's Taylor Entz, and I'm a, I'm a church planting resident here. I'm looking to plant Sojourn Galleria in the fall. If God wills it and the creek don't rise too high. We're doing a series right now <clears throat> on 1 Timothy entitled The Household of God. We open the series uh, saying that inside the house is where our gospel identity gets formed and fostered. And we went on to say, this is all not me, but Brandon and others, that the foundation of the house is grace, the work of Christ. And the rest of the letter is building the structure of that house, which is the church. So today we're going to keep building the structure by talking about the purpose of the church. So if you're taking notes, that helps you. Today we're talking about the purpose of the church from 1 Timothy three, fourteen through 4, 5, through the early part of chapter 4. In a book he titled, Man, the Dwelling Place of God, the 20th, mid-20th century, early 20th century Chicago preacher and writer A.W. Tozer wrote, The Associated Press lately carried an interesting, if somewhat depressing, story out of London about a certain British peer who had just died a few days short of his 89th birthday. Having been a man of means and position, it had presumably not been necessary for him to work for a living like the rest of us. So at the time of his death, he had had about 70 adult years in which he was free to do whatever he wanted to do, to pursue any calling he wished to, or to work at anything he felt worthy of his considerable abilities. And what had he chosen to do? Well, according to the story, he had, quote, devoted his life trying to breed the perfect spotted mouse. This is Tozer. Now, I grant every man the right to breed spotted mice if he wants to and can get the cooperation of the mice. And I freely admit that it is his business and not mine. Not being a mouse lover nor a mouse hater for that matter, I am just a neutral about mice. I do not know but that a spotted mouse might be more useful and make a more affectionate pet than a common colored mouse. But still, I am troubled. I cannot but grieve for my brother beyond the seas. Made in the image of God, equipped with awesome powers of mind and soul, called to dream immortal dreams and to think the long thoughts of eternity, he chooses the breeding of a spotted mouse as his reason for existing. Invited to walk with God on earth and to dwell at last with the saints and angels in the world above, called to serve his generation by the will of God, to press with holy vigor toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He dedicates his life to the spotted mouse. Not just evenings or holidays, mind you, but his entire life. Surely this is tragedy, worthy of the mind of an Aeschylus or a Shakespeare. Don't know whether to laugh or cry. I kind of want to do both as I'm sure did Tozer as he penned these words. So here in in his first letter to Timothy, near the end of Paul's life, the great apostle Paul, great not because of what he did, but because of the work of Christ for him, as he reminds us over and over and over again, more and more vehemently, 
as he gets closer and closer to death and to seeing his Savior face to face. Toward the end of his life, Paul reminds Timothy of the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church. Which is not, the church is not a building, right? It's not, it's not a building, but it's a people. It's us. It's we for whom God has died and called his own children. Their purpose is the purpose of life. The purpose of the church is the purpose of life. In short, the purpose of the church, of my life and of yours, is to serve the truth, to preserve the truth, and to proclaim Jesus Christ. So the purpose of the church is to serve the church, to serve the truth, excuse me, to preserve the truth, and to proclaim Jesus Christ. Spending our lives on anything else, friends, or on anything less, is in many ways akin to spending our lives trying to breed the perfect spotted mouse. I want to try to make that case with the few minutes I have with you this morning. So firstly, the purpose of the church is to, it's to serve the truth. Really focusing here on the first part of our text, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Paul makes clear that the purpose of the church, which is those of us who have trusted and hid in Christ, the purpose of the church is to serve the gospel or the truth. The two are really synonymous here. When, when Paul says truth here, what he really means, as we'll see, is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So the purpose of the church is, is not to be served by the truth, but instead to serve it. What does this mean? It means that the church is the servant and guardian, not the determiner of the truth. I want to repeat that, and I'll unfold it. It means that the church is the servant and the guardian, not the determiner of the truth. Verse 15 reads this way in the ESV, which I think most of us have. Um, If I delay, Paul says, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul here, he gives us three concrete pictures of the church. The first picture is that it's, like I said, it's, it's, well, it's a home. It's God's dwelling place. It's God's home. The church is God's home. It's not this building. It's not a place. It's a people. We are the place that God chooses to reside. So people are holy. Okay, not buildings. Architecture, art, engineering, construction, all very important, all things that God's gifted us to do. But God died for us. We, people, are holy if we are in, in Christ. And if we are not in Christ, by his cross, he, he is calling us. He is calling those outside, and he uses us to call them to repentance, to be his people, to be his church. So God died for people, not buildings. We at Sojourn, we want to invest accordingly. Um, It's one of the reasons that at Sojourn Galleria, one of our seven values, I think it's the last one on the list if you get on the website, is they're all P's, but it's partnership. We really, uh, we want to partner with other ministries rather than creating them within the church. We want to partner with others that are doing justice and mercy to be the hands and the feet of Christ, to invest in people, not so much in buildings or programs. Um, so not, not huge building campaigns, although that's kind of ironic because we're, we are, uh, we're working on our building right now. But if you'll notice, it's a fairly small, modest building, and that was for a reason. Um, we're really trying, trying to create space for people, for kids, and we thank God for that. So no one puts this point better, the fact that people are the ones for whom God died, that the church is people, and that uh, people are worth 
giving our lives to see saved by the blood of Christ. No one puts this better than C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, which I love. He says this, he says, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors, if they end up in hell, apart from God, apart from Christ. Or everlasting splendors, if they hide in Christ. And no one, so no one maybe says it better than Lewis. No one does it better, did it better, put more skin in the game to prove this point than Jesus himself, our Lord, who died for us, who died for his church, for his bride, to make us his bride. Didn't die for a building, no matter how beautiful. And Paul expresses this in this image that he gives us of the church as the household of God. It's the place that God chooses to dwell as we are remade through, by faith, through the work of Jesus Christ. Let us treat each other in this church, in this body, in this people of God in such a way that when people watch the way we treat each other and outsiders, they would see, they would see, oh, I can see how Christ died for these people. I can see the love of Jesus in them. I can see the worth. I can see the holiness. Let us treat each other in this way, that it makes sense of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So he uses the image of a home. Next, he uses the image of a pillar. Right, And this is all as uh, the church as the servant of the truth. He, uses, he says the church is a pillar and buttress, which the ESV translation, that word's a, a tough one. I, in my notes before cutting a bunch out, I just had all sorts of stuff on coming down to the word. It, it, buttress is a good choice. Just trust me, if you will. Um, it's only used here in the New Testament. It's rarely found in classical Greek literature. Buttress is, is something that comes out from the side that supports a building, whereas a pillar supports it from the inside. So Paul here, he's really making the same point with this word. The church supports, serves the truth, not vice versa. Um, the truth doesn't exist to serve the church. Okay? Um, it's, it's this way with, it, it sounds, I don't know, I don't know if it sounds strange or sort of impractical to you, but life works this way. So research, so I spent the last few years doing research. Um, that sounds really boring. It wasn't a cubicle and it was boring at times. But as, as any of us know that have done any studying of any kind, um, good research um, works this way. You, you work to serve the truth as a good researcher, but bad research is, is the opposite. That you, make, you contort and pervert the truth and twist it in order to serve your ideas. Um, in his great book, um, Intellectuals, Paul Johnson writes on a bunch of people, and one of them is Karl Marx. Uh, and he... Uh, he talks about how Karl Marx, he was just this passionate man. One of his best friends described him as someone um, who was chased around by, it seemed like he was being chased around by 10,000 demons holding on, to his, tugging at his hair at all times, which I hope I'm never thought of by any of you as that. If I am, please don't, please don't tell me. Um, he was a passionate guy and he got a hold of these ideas. And what he did for the next few years is he did research and he tossed the stuff that didn't support his ideas and he took hold of the stuff that did. That's poor research. That's making the truth be in the service of your research. Um, so if the truth doesn't serve us, we dismiss it. It's not a helpful way to read the scriptures. It's actually, it's actually not a helpful way just to read any, period. Like if, if you're reading something, as, Lewis, as C.S. Lewis said, 
he wanted to enter into, to treat, in a sense, every book he was reading as infallible at the beginning, to enter into um, the, the very skin, if he could, of this author, to really understand, to accept what he was saying, not uncritically, but to understand this is what he's trying to get across. Um, from the get-go to say, nope, I don't accept that, nope, I don't accept that, is just not good reading, and it's certainly not a good way to engage the Word of God. We are to serve the Word as the church, as the people of God. And in that sense, really it speaks to us when we come up against passages as the passage that Dodds preached last week might have been for some people, a hard passage, a hard passage. We come up against words that God gives us throughout the corpus of his scripture, his revelation to us that just hit us wrong, that are hard for us, um, that we want to dodge and, and go around as it were. It's those, Paul is telling us here, if we know that we exist to serve the truth, that it ought to shape us and not the other way around. We ought not to shape it, but it ought to shape us. Um, it's those passages that can help form the image of Jesus Christ in us most fully. Relationships work the same way. So it, it works this way with good reading, good research. It works this way with good relationships, right? So if you're in a relationship, every time someone... Um, that you're with, let's say you're, you're in a covenant relationship with your spouse, which is part of the beauty of the covenant, is you come up against things all the time uh, that just you don't, either you don't like about your spouse at the time or that rub you the wrong way because you're two sinners. But it's as, as you let that personality be that person that oftentimes rubs you, that it creates, it, it's iron sharpening iron. As opposed to if you just try to not in, disengage in that relationship, and not allow the truth of that person to shape you and to form you, you really just have a shell of a relationship at that point. And it works with that way in marriage, but with any friendship and any, any good relationship. So this is the way that life works, and this is what Paul is telling us um, is true of the church and the truth, that we, the church, exist to serve the truth, not the other way around. And in the end, that's a very hopeful thing, because what it means is that Christ is forming his image in us, and we're not making of his word and thus of him something that looks a lot like us, which in the end, that just results in us worshiping us. We we end up worshiping an image that looks like me, and that's idolatry. So letting the revealed word of truth, which is the gospel, speak to us even in the hard places, it's going to make us like Jesus. So we, the church exists to serve uh, to serve the truth. Um, this really, Paul, I can't, I don't have time to get into it, but Paul really, this word that's translated buttress, I think well translated in the ESV, it can also be translated, um, it's a ground or like an anchor of the truth because the truth in us is, we're, it's always tending to shift. It's always tending to, it's, we want it to mean what feels good for us, what doesn't rub us the wrong way, what doesn't shape us and and, and make us into God's image. We want it to be easy and nice. Um, but what Paul says is it's the church and the community of saints that's one of the things that God's given us to preserve and to ground and to keep steadfast and to anchor the truth of the gospel. So it's very American for us to think it's me and Jesus and I can kind of go my own way and worship God. But actually, that, co- that category doesn't exist in the scriptures. Paul doesn't say that the saint is the anchor of the truth. He says the church, saints in community, which is one of the reasons that just in this chapter, as was preached two weeks ago by Brandon, 
he spends so much time outlining the qualifications for elders and for deacons. They are to be guardians for us. They are to be shepherds for us, for our own good, that we don't pervert the truth, that we don't make the truth serve us, rather that, it, that we realize we are servants of the truth. Um, I've never seen a Christian go off on his own, go off on her own, because he, was, he had grievances against the church, don't we all? We're all? I mean, the church is full of sinners. <laughs> and, and I've never seen that end well. In, in my 36 years, I've never seen that tack end well. It always ends in disaster. The only way it ends well is if there's a return to the church, full of sinners though it be. Um, Brandon here at this point told me, he shamelessly plug perishes. Um, and I think in this crew, I don't, I don't need to shamelessly plug them. I can just say, again, the parish is a smaller expression, the neighborhood parish of the local church. And it's really in there that we are known and that we know. And it's, and, and it's there that we purposefully put ourselves in a place where we can't deceive people as well. And that's a good thing. That lends to this idea that the church is indeed a bulwark, a fortress, an anchor of the truth. Secondly, the purpose of the church is to preserve the truth. If we skip over to, and don't worry, I'm not going to skip verse 16. I'm going to finish with it. If we skip over into the verses in chapter 4, 1 through 5. So the purpose of the church is to serve the truth. It's also to preserve the truth. Paul's just written on qualifications for overseers and elders, like I said. Brandon taught on it two weeks ago. Now we see, or rather a week ago perhaps. I wasn't here. I was teaching elsewhere. I'm now broadcasting my ignorance. Um, okay, I'm going to skip that. Paul talks here about deceitful spirits. I'm going to read the verse. 4 verse 1. He talks here about deceitful spirits. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And he goes on to sort of talk on what that is, and we'll get into that a little bit. Those are, those are, that's, those are, Damning words. Severe words. Deceitful spirits. What's the thing about a deceitful spirit if we just camp out there for 60 seconds? Well, deceit means I'm I'm tricked. I I was deceived. I thought one thing was true, but actually it wasn't. So deceit isn't really by its very nature something that you can detect. You think you're on the right path. So each of you right now, if you're thinking, "I'm I'm not being tricked by a deceitful spirit, that's no proof at all. Do you, do you see? That's no proof at all. What is one of the bulwarks, anchors, that keeps us from being deceived by spirits? Being the church together, engaging purposefully in parish communities, in this larger body of Christ, surrounding ourselves with people that know us, opening ourselves up, and encouraging others to do the same, so that we are not deceived, because we know that we often are, that... Uh, that line in the, in the hymn, um, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. I just love that, prone to wander. It's my favorite line in the hymn because we ought to know that about ourselves. I know that I'm prone to wander. It's part of our, it is our sin nature. And so sticking ourselves into community is a great way not to be deceived. And Christ has created the church in part for this very purpose. Okay, 
I'm going to move on to the next phrase, doctrine of demons. So he says that deceitful spirits have crept in, doctrine of demons as well as the gospels being preached over these 30 years after Christ's resurrection around the Mediterranean rim by Paul and other apostles and other servants of Christ. People come in and they deceive and they contort the truth, the gospel. And this is actually, Paul says, nothing less than the doctrine of demons. You know, alarm bells. When we read that, I think it's easy to check out. Okay, though they, again, they may have been deceived, and hopefully we've, we won't check out as easily now. Okay, if we are being deceived right now, we probably won't know it. So suspect yourself. What has caused you to veer off the gospel? What will cause you in the future to veer off the gospel? Have you? And we're going to talk about the undiluted gospel in our last point. But when we read doctrine of demons, it's like, come on now. I'm not involved in the doctrine of demons at all. I don't propagate that stuff. Well, what does Paul, what's, what, are, what are two of the things he lists as the doctrine of demons, as these deceitful spirits? These people, you, you think they, they suck blood and they kill people or whatever. That's not what he says. What does he say? Look down, verse 3. He says they forbid marriage and certain foods. Really? That's the doctrine of demons? Yeah. Why is that so dangerous? Why is that so deadly? Why is that so demonic? What do the demons know that we don't, that they know that if we, they just enter, it, just slide in a few of these extras that seem pretty harmless, that it's, that it's going to throw everything off? It's because Jesus plus anything is not the gospel anymore. It's salvation by works. Jesus plus the gospel is not salvation. It, it doesn't, doesn't save us. It's, it, it means that we are trying to save us by adding to the gospel, which is that God saves us alone through the work of Jesus Christ. So demons understand this better than a lot of, a lot of us. They love religion, which is Jesus plus. They love religion because religion is trying to make yourself presentable to God. Religion takes people to hell, where they will perish forever. That is, where they will be eternally undone, devoured. Demons love this, uh, because they are in hell, and misery loves company. And because they are like their master, Satan, who wants with everything in him to steal you, to kill you, and to destroy you forever where he is. I want to read these words before moving on to point three from the Anglican bishop, 19th century bishop, J.C. Ryle, at the end of his work, Holiness, which I would highly recommend. He says this. He says, There are multitudes of baptized men and women who profess to honor Christ, but in reality do him great dishonor. They give Christ a certain place in their system of religion, but not the place which God intended him to fill. Christ alone is not all to their souls. No, it is either Christ in the church or Christ in the sacraments or Christ in his ordained ministers or Christ in their own repentance, or Christ in their own goodness, or Christ in their own prayers, or Christ in their own sincerity and charity, on which they practically rest their souls. And just fill in the blank. Be honest with yourself for a minute. Ask God to show you, what is it for me? What is it Christ plus? What's the plus? What else am I relying on? It's the doctrine of demons, friend. If any reader, he goes on, of this paper is a Christian of this kind, I warn him also plainly that his religion is an offense to God. You are changing God's plan of salvation into a plan of your own devising. You are in effect deposing Christ from his throne by giving the glory due him 
to another. Take heed of what you are doing. Beware of giving to Christ's servants the honor due to none but Christ. Beware of giving the Lord's ordinances the honor due unto the Lord. Beware of resting the burden of your soul on anything but Christ and Christ alone. And again, who's the best at deceiving you? Who's the best at deceiving me? Myself. Yourself. Again, which is why I want to shamelessly plug neighborhood parishes. Again, it's in community where people can see us, right, with more objectivity often than we can see ourselves. Because what? I am the subject of myself. I am subjective about me all the time, basically. It's one reason the word is so important. It doesn't change. And I ought not to change it like Jefferson's Bible, cut out the pieces I don't like. In the end, that Bible ends up looking a lot like what I believe to begin with. That's just bad reading. He should have known better, okay? It's bad scholarship. It's bad relationship. It's bad Bible reading. It's not the way the church works. The way the church works is, man, especially when I'm going through a hard time, I don't pull back, I get in. Especially when I'm in the middle of sin, I don't pull back, I get in. Because I know that the church has been given to serve the truth and to preserve the truth. And I care about my ever-living soul and that of other people, okay? Finally, point three, the purpose of the church is to proclaim Jesus Christ. I have to say here, friends, even in this morning, going over my manuscript one more time, I actually changed the word proclaim. This is the last point. The purpose of the church is to proclaim Jesus Christ. We're going to look at that briefly at that hymn, that beautiful hymn in verse 16 that ties the two chapters together. But I changed the word proclaim to worship. The purpose of the church is to worship Jesus Christ. Because after all, if we worship God through Jesus Christ, if we're totally, completely ravished, to use a word from John Donne, by his beauty, by the beauty of Christ and what he's done for us, and the fact that salvation is from him and him alone, not Jesus plus, it's Jesus. If we're ravished by that beauty, by him, don't you think worship will just exude from us? It will come out of our lips and out of our lives. Because after all, this is a hymn. Verse 16, it's an ancient hymn that Paul uses. And a hymn is something of praise. It's the pivot that holds these pieces together. And he talks about this great mystery. It's a strange phrase in verse 16. He says, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. In verse 9, he uses a similar phrase, the mystery of faith. What is this mystery of godliness, this mystery of faith? Well, in a word, it is the gospel and in a word, what does Paul say the truth is, the gospel is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus' person and work. Because for those six lines right there, those six short lines, and I wish we had time, we don't. I'm not going to go through each one of them. They're so rich. But it's all about Jesus, his person, entering into history, doing what he did, not for him, not for himself. He needed nothing for us. That Paul says, this is the truth. It is a person. It is Jesus Christ himself. We've talked in this sermon about the truth, the gospel, how the church's job is to serve and preserve that truth. And from this, it's very easy to begin thinking that it is all about the gospel. I want you to stay with me. This is, I use, I'm reading this because these words are put down on paper for a reason. Okay? It's easy to begin thinking that it's all about the gospel, that the gospel saves or that other good things we embrace are the main things we are to be about as believers. Like faith, or fellowship with other believers, or robust biblical theology. But what does Paul say here? What is the pivot of these chapters? 
What, what literally do they hang on? What holds them together? What is their bullseye? What's the funnel that they pour into? It's Jesus. It's just pure Jesus and Jesus alone. Guys, vicarious atonement, the doctrine of vicarious atonement that Jesus Christ died for us, not for him, in our place to save us. It's a beautiful doctrine, but that doctrine does not save. If and when you go to heaven, the doctrine of vicarious atonement will not be waiting there to receive you. Nor will your faith. Nor fellowship with other believers, however sweet, nor many good works you've done of justice and mercy. Just Jesus, Jesus will receive you. The man Jesus, the only God, because he and he alone has saved you. Hear these pointed words from George MacDonald. He says, some of you say we must trust in the finished work of Christ or that our faith must be in the merits of Christ or in the atonement he has made or in the blood he has shed. All these statements deny the living Lord in whom we are told to believe. Who by his presence with and in us in our obedience to him lifts us out of darkness into light. Leads us from the kingdom of Satan into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Friends, I want to tell you, there is a heaven and a hell's worth of difference between knowing much about Christ and knowing Christ himself. It's like the difference between a man in a cave who knows about the particle and wave properties of light, which is true. And that man out of the cave, by the beach, feeling the sun, the glorious sun, warm his skin. Do you know about him only? Or do you know him? Do you know Christ's manner, his kindness, his touch, his beauty, the flood of his mercy, his consolation and sorrow? His power amidst temptation and trial. The highness of his hope. The lowness of his humility. Do you know this Jesus, this man? When he calls, do you recognize his voice? If not, you may well be dead in your sins, friend. Come to him. To him alone. To Jesus. And live. I'm going to wrap up here and cut this short. There's really not much more. But what this is, this hymn that we're not going to exegete, it's a a confession, it's a creed, it's an early hymn. And it really shows us that from the get-go, there were detractors and there still are today who said the church may, it took until Nicaea, until the fourth century for the church to really figure out what they believed about what the gospel is. Nonsense. This shows here, 30 years after Christ, we already have a hymn, which means it's been around for a long time. Paul quotes it. He knows it. And he expects that others do too. It's well received from the get-go. Immediately, almost after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, Christ began to be worshipped as God in a monotheistic culture. It is Christ alone who saves. And if we look at this hymn, the one thing I'll say is, if you look at the beginning and the end of it, how does it begin? If you look at verse 16, how does it start? It starts with how he started. It starts with his incarnation. It starts with the fact that God has always been God, and the Son of God has always been the only Son of the living God, but he's not always been a man. 2,000 years ago, at the fullness of time, he chose to enter the world and to become a man for the first time, and a man he remains, and he lived for us, and he died in our place for us, and he rose, not for himself, 
for us. And he ascended to power for us, to represent us. Because, friends, the Son of God has always sat on the throne of power. What happens in heaven happens on earth. It's the control center of the cosmos. Don't you think that God has always sat on his throne? Don't you think that the Son was always in the bosom of the Father reigning? Of course. But not as a man. And now, as a man and as God, he reigns. For the first time in history, with the ascension, the dust of the earth sat at the helm of the heavens. And he represents us as a man, which is why Paul hits on this historical Jesus, because he knows that if Jesus wasn't truly a man and didn't live a life like we live and die the death we deserve in history, then he couldn't represent us. Only a man can represent men. A rabbit can't do it. A rabbit can't represent men. Uh, an, an, An angel cannot represent men. Can I say this with reverence? Even God himself cannot represent men, lest he also fully become a man. In the God-man Jesus Christ, for the first time in history, we had and still have, as he reigns in heaven, by faith we are connected to him, a representative who lived the life that we should live but never could, never can, of full obedience to God from the heart and who died the death that we deserve and who reigns now victorious on the throne for us. And faith connects us to that. Brandon wanted me, uh, I'm throwing him under the bus so bad here. He's so good at application, I'm so bad. He wanted me to to plug Sojourn Galleria here. Come with us if, if this resonates with you and you're in the Galleria. And so I would say, yeah, consider it. Come talk to me afterwards. Um, because we do want to, this is one of our P's, right? One of them is partnership. One of them is we want to proclaim Christ. We want that to be everything that we do. We want to, to praise him and for our proclamation to be an outflow of that. And if you are in the Galleria, you work there, you live there, yeah, come talk to me. But honestly, that's so secondary. What I, what I desire is for you to more than ever realize that as the church, and if you're not the church, if you haven't been made, if you haven't been brought into the family of God and made a child of God, and you're still at war with God, even if you don't know that, you are. You're his enemy. Come to Christ now. And let it be your purpose in life, the purpose of the church, to serve the truth, to preserve the truth, and to proclaim Christ by worshiping him as your only Savior and Lord. Um, anything less, friends, spending our life on anything less is, no matter how worthy it may seem, spending our life on anything less is going to be akin to spending our life trying to breed the perfect spotted mouse. Um, let me pray.